You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I am Brent Bergherm, your host for this episode, and with me I've got Jeff Harmon. Jeff, welcome back. How have things been? Good, good. Really excited to, to talk about our topic today. It's been, I'm good. Wonderful. So yeah, we're going to talk about fall colors here in a moment, but I wanted to just catch up with you just a little bit. Share with me something either you've been working on, some whatever you've been shooting, or uh, just what's going on in, in your life the last week and a half or two, whatever. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually finishing up the final touches on a new video I'm going to be putting out to my YouTube channel on the new ball head, the Highline ball head from Colorado Tripod Company. Yeah. And uh, a contender for like best value ball head. And, and uh, it's, it's a really, really nice ball head. So you'll have to check out the video to see kind of the feature comparisons between the, the ball head I've been using for many years from, from Suray now that um, that has been my go-to recommendation for a hobbyist photographer, anybody on a budget that needed like a, a really good, high-quality build and mostly featured kind of ball head in the Suray to uh, what the Colorado offers, the, the Highline ball head from Colorado Tripod. So anyway, that, that video will be coming out very shortly where I, I show you in the video kind of the, the direct comparison and how the two fare and, and my thoughts about it. Awesome. Yeah, I have a Suray myself. I can't remember the exact model, but that's the one that I have on my slightly smaller tripod and certainly good. And this one from Colorado Tripod Company, I have been, I've been eyeing that one. And they have another one, um, I forget what it's called, but it's made for a more mirrorless model type camera. So I, I'm tempted by that one too. It looks really lightweight and so right. it'll be good to see your video. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Brent? What have you, what have you been up to? Well, I just got back last week uh, from my workshop on the Oregon coast. I did a shoot and print workshop, and that was loads of fun. It was a smaller group, but we had loads of fun going out and shooting and then learning the print process. And it was really cool. One of the attendees, when, when we first started diving into the printing, he was like, you know, what you taught me today was like worth the whole thing. And I was just like, uh, very good. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, so fun when that happens. That feels so good. I yeah. mean, you know, if I can be a little bit stroking my ego a little bit, I just feel so good when that happens. And I'm just doing a happy dance in my head. And w when something like that happens, and I'm just so thrilled that what I was able to get across uh, is resonating really well. Anyway, it was just so much fun going up and down the southern part of the coast and finding some some great things for these people to shoot and uh, showing them some of my favorite spots down there. And I'm looking to do it actually by the time this uh, episode is out on Thursday, I should have it on my website. I'm going to do it in the Palouse. So take a look at my website and um, it'll just be a lot of fun doing a little bit of shooting and uh, quite a bit of printing. So it's, it's good stuff. And then yeah. I've got school coming up here shortly. We're, we're ramping up for starting at the university, we're on the quarter system, so we're a little bit uh, behind uh, most everyone else that's not on the quarter system. It's already in school, uh, but we are ramping up in less than two weeks. Well, in less than three weeks, I should say. Uh, we are back in the classroom and going at it. And um, so looking forward to that, getting lots of projects done uh, that I have summer projects and just completing some things. So 
it's going good though. Things are things are chugging along. Nice. So today we're going to talk about fall colors and the idea of shooting fall colors. And here in the northern hemisphere, of course, we're basically over with summer and we're looking forward to this changing of the seasons. And of course, fall is pretty much coming our way pretty quickly here. And in the coming uh, weeks or whatever, you know, we're going to start feeling some cooler temperatures and the like. And somewhere around, I don't know where what time it is exactly for you there in Utah, uh, Jeff, but somewhere around October is usually the, the prime time for thinking about fall colors. Uh, is there anything like a special special window that happens there in Utah? Because I know it's just different, and and we should probably be looking up, you know, and tell people to look up these different fall color maps and the like, so they know where they're looking to shoot. They have an idea of of when it's going to be. Yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to cooler temperatures. I'm kind of a colder weather guy. I really don't like the heat, <laughs> and you I know? hear I live in in the western <laughs> desert, and yeah. And we've had record temperatures in Utah. Like, it's still 100 degrees here in oh. September. And that's very unusual. It's setting records. And, and I hate it so much. I can't wait for cooler temperatures. And, and it's going to come. And yes, the leaves change here. Um, it, it doesn't vary a whole lot because it, it really has more to do with light than anything else. Sure. So, so the more, you know, the way the light changes is what dictates when how the leaves go. And weather has, of course, some impact, but it's it's mostly that. And there's some resources. I, I wish I could remember what it was. I usually just go Google for like fall right. color predictor map or something like that, and and I I find the the resource. Maybe I'll look it up real quick as you're as you're t- talking about some of the other tips. But um, yeah, I love to be able to go up into the mountains here in Utah and shoot fall colors. It is a truly breathtaking kind of sight, and and really, I've I don't feel like I have done a stellar job of capturing that yet. Yeah, nothing I've been satisfied with. I've got some shots that I've liked, but nothing that that is really like wow. That I I really am glad I have that. So I, I'm excited to give it a go this again this fall. It's been it, one of the challenges is just getting there. Like every the schools are the kids are back in school, like you said. So that means a lot of busyness and a lot of things going on that, that make it tough to get away and go do go do those kinds of things. But uh, yeah, I really, really want to go do that and, and uh, try out. We're going to talk about a bunch of tips yeah. that people can use to do that. So so I'm excited. Yeah. And there's also some Facebook groups that I know are out there where people are sharing, you know, they're, they, they were out there and it's not quite, you know, the best or it looks really awesome. Get out there this week kind of thing. Uh, someone... I think invited me or Facebook was suggesting because I have friends on Facebook that are part of this Colorado group uh, with fall colors. And so there's lots of these other, what my recommendation really on that first idea is just do a quick search for what you can find for the area that you want to travel to or the area you live in. And I'm sure you'll find something that will help you uh, predict, uh, help you understand what's going on in, in the current setup out here in Southeast Washington. We actually, when I think of fall color, you know, I've got a, I know of a cluster of trees over here and a little bit of things over here, that kind of a thing. There just isn't that big wide expanse that you have, you know, expanse that you have in the mountains of Utah and Colorado and definitely in up at the Northeast, like in Vermont and Maine and places like that. That is a place where kind of like you, I feel I just haven't had that opportunity to do awesomeness simply because of where I live for the last 25 years is when it comes to fall, things die off pretty quick here. 
And uh, we do have some pockets. And so that's kind of what I try to, to focus my efforts on because when you get those pockets, it's really exciting. And especially the sumac trees, uh, some of those will just turn a brilliant bright red and orange and that, that can turn out really well. But let's look at our first tips. I've got like, I think 10 tips here that we're gonna be going through. And my first tip is quite frankly, almost all the time I would suggest, you know, that you're gonna <laughs> find some ideas where you don't wanna do this, but using a polarizer, using that polarizer filter will really help enhance those colors. And even if it's really foggy, I would still say, use the polarizing filter because what it does, the polarizer, you know, in a technical sense, we can look at it and say, you know, what does it actually do? It reduces or eliminates reflections from non-metallic surfaces. And so there's a bunch of moisture on those leaves, especially when it's foggy or early morning, that kind of a thing. And that light that is being reflected off of that moisture on those leaves is causing a lot of glare. And we can cut through that glare with a polarizer and the colors will just kind of vibrate. You know, even when you're just shooting and it's not fall colors, I say, you know, that green can just vibrate. Well, now we're going to have these beautiful oranges, yellows, and reds, and that'll just kind of resonate through the, through the lens. And it just really looks awesome. It can look awesome anyway. Okay. So just for, for listeners, we have so many new listeners to the yeah. show. For, for someone who is new to this, maybe they don't have a polarizing filter yet. Describe what that is and, and how to use it, right? Thank you. Yes. So the polarizer filter is a, is a piece of glass, technically two pieces of glass, but it screws onto the front of your lens. And usually you buy the same size that your lens is. So like if the opening on your lens has a thread mount, let's say of 72 millimeters, that's a popular size for mirrorless and SLR cameras, DSLR cameras. So you would screw it on there and then it itself has actually a rotation type item. And there's two types of polarizers. There's linear polarizer. Uh, when you're looking, you know, on B&H or wherever you're going to shop from, Amazon, etc. There's linear polarizers and there's circular polarizers. If you want your autofocus to continue working, buy the circular polarizer. And that doesn't mess up your standard phase detection autofocus your contrast detect autofocus would still work. It's just your phase detection autofocus. Uh, you need the circular polarizer. So right. when you twist that and you're spinning that item, what it's doing is it's got these, I guess we could call them like gates. They're, they're light yeah. gates. And it allows light to come in at any old angle and it doesn't matter. Or when these gates align, it says it gives preference, if you will, to those light wavelengths that are traveling in a certain angle you know well, light always travels in a wave so it's waving up and down but what you have normally is when you're looking at let's say you're looking at uh, this tree and you look at it with a naked eye and the light wavelengths that are coming at you are coming every which way on the the angles of how they're striking your eyeball and what happens when you use a polarizer whether you have sunglasses that are polarizing or in this case, a filter on your camera, you're saying, okay, we're going to darken the scene a bit and give preference to these wavelengths that are at this certain angle. And we're going to allow those through. So what that does is it says, okay, with that water, that moisture, I should say, that's on the, the surface of the, of the leaf in this case, maybe it's on the surface of a rock. You're at a river or a lake or something like that. 
that is just all scattered. And then your polarizer comes in and says, okay, all that scattered light, we're going to, we're going to, you know, not allow you to go through. And we're just going to take in that light that comes in at a certain angle. And then you can get really uh, punchy blues in your skies. That's what we most know the, the polarizer for. But in this case, when we're not dealing with the sky, let's say, we're just going to let that color that is natural in the leaf, we're going to let it shine through and all that other stuff that's in the way because that moisture is causing all that scattering, that just gets reduced or eliminated. And then all that beauty from the original leaf or the flower bud or whatever it is you're looking at shines through and it's just gorgeous. I think it it's also good because a, a lot of fall photos tend to include water. Sure. Whether it's uh, a waterfall and you might want to, you're trying to do some like to, uh, to do extended uh, shutter speeds and, uh, and make the water look creamy or uh, it's a lake and you're trying to get the, the fall colors and the reflection in the yeah. lake. All that stuff, it really can enhance the photos a lot. And that's another place where this can help, where the, the polarizing filter can, can make that lake look different than you, you are seeing it. And it's a really cool effect that I think fits extremely well with fall color yeah. foliage. And it works great for rainbows too. So you can oh, yeah. subtly enhance if you have a, the opportunity to photograph a rainbow, you can enhance that or almost virtually eliminate it all as well. So whatever your subject is, if you have light that's reflecting off a non-metallic surface, because if it, if the light is going on a metallic surface, it keeps its randomness. But when it goes, when it, when it's coming off of that, um, when it's coming off the water, it gets polarized and then you're able to counteract that so you're not getting that certain scattering of light that you don't want and you get the light that you do want coming through. A standard polarizing filter does take out about two stops of light from your overall exposure. So you want to think about, you know, the camera meter will automatically compensate for that because you're putting it right on top of your lens. It's just be thinking about, you know, if you're not using your polarizer and you're at a certain shutter speed, when you put that on, you're going to lose two stops of light. And usually for my shooting, I'll make that up in shutter speed, but it certainly depends on exactly what you're shooting. Like you said, if you're right. shooting water, if you're handheld or tripod, there's so many different things that go into that. Uh, but, but do we do want, and that kind of leads into our tip number two, and that is watch the exposure. Real, real quick though, but with yeah. the polarizer, do you keep it on your camera all the time? Almost all the time when I'm shooting something like this, yes, because there's just so many opportunities where it does work well. And then if for some reason the lighting is not right and it doesn't work well, it's not polarizing, well, then it just has the effect of a neutral density filter. And to take it on and off, I find it tends to be a little more annoying. And so I'll just leave it on anyway, even if it's not having much of an effect, because most of the shots will, it will have a good effect when you're shooting color like this. Okay. Now, now on to exposure. Yeah. Watch the exposures is what I'm kind of titling tip number two with these rich colors. I find it really easy to overexpose my images because we look at these colors and we're all like, oh, it's so bright and beautiful and everything like that. And my biggest problem also actually is when I'm shooting uh, sunset or sunrise and I'm just like, oh, it's supposed to be so, you know, bright and gorgeous. Well, if you make it, you know, bright, according to your histogram, you know, really close to the right hand side of your histogram, 
then you're going to lose out in all the richness of the color. So I'm just saying watch that so you're not overexposing and you're actually going to maintain some of that just gorgeous, beautiful, saturated color. But another thing that we need to think about too, because if you're, especially if you're using the polarizer and you've got all this light coming in that's uh, very concentrated, let's say in the reds or the oranges, what have you, what you're going to find is it might be easy to in that one channel of color, let's say the red, for example, it might be easy to overexpose that one channel of color. And while the others, the green and the blue might be pulled back because, you know, it's a red leaf or whatever, you could still overexpose it in just that one channel and lose your yeah. detail where you might look at a, a basic histogram that shows you an average of all colors and be like, oh, you know, it's not too bad. It's, it's well within. Well, this is where I'm saying, figure out on your camera how to look at the RGB values of that histogram and make sure each one of those is not uh, blowing out too much either because you could lose detail simply because you have full color coming through in that one channel. I've seen firsthand how this can be with the red being uh, kind of overexposed, I'll call it. But and, and a lot of times it's recoverable as long as you don't go too far yeah. overexposed on it. But a lot of times it's, it's recoverable with raw files. But in Canon in particular, it has a tendency, the sensor, the way it works, it has a tendency to overexpose red compared to other colors. Even if all colors were actually the same bright, the same luminance, mm -hmm. uh, the red just comes through brighter on Canon sensors. And uh, and so you have to, I've, I've seen this a lot when I've photographed flowers, I have to go into the HSL panel in Lightroom and tone down the luminance of red almost always so that I can see the details that are there. And it's, it's amazing how yep. much more that can be there. So, and, and I love your tip about going into the camera settings, dig into your menus so you can see, I, I'm pretty confident every camera I've ever looked at <laughs> has the ability to show kind of the color channels in the histogram versus just one, one histogram that's all white is usually how it's represented on the camera. So it's, it's nice to switch to that. So it shows the, the different, the RGB channels and you can watch how the saturation is, is happening there and, and uh, make decisions about your exposure. Yeah, and sometimes that might only be available, depending on your camera, it might only be available when you play the image back. That's right. Um, I, I don't think I've seen many cameras that do it in the live view where you see all the different RGBs separated out, but at least you get when you play it back. So as you're kind of shooting, you're getting your, your composition just right. You know, take a look at an image or two and see where that exposure is coming in and then adjust if you have to and, and just start shooting and, and work that scene over. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm looking at my camera right now just to see. And yes, you can get the, uh, the histogram in live view for video mm. on my Canon camera, but it's not RGB. It's white only. Yeah. And, but, and so when you take the photo and then you hit play and it shows the histogram, then, then you can see it. Yeah, it's, it's an advantage with mirrorless. They all have... You know, the, the histogram right there in the viewfinder, in live view, all yep. of it is, is right there. And that's a big advantage with mirrorless for, for this kind of work. Well, and my 5D4 does allow me to see the histogram in live view as well. Uh -huh. So it could just okay. be, depend on the model of your camera as well uh, right. with what you're able to see specifically in the live view. Or if you're on mirrorless, of course, you should be able to just hit that info or detail button. Just, just depends on what it is for your camera. This is a, this is why they need to dig into their manuals though. Go, oh, go yeah. look at what your camera's capabilities are 
and see how you can get histogram information. And if you don't know how to read a histogram, we've talked about that on the podcast here or on Phototaco before, so you can go find out about that. It's a really powerful tool that can help you with exposure. So tip number three is a simple idea, um, but often, all too often, I find myself uh, almost thinking of it as an after uh, effect, and that is the idea of zooming or zooming in. And for me, usually, actually, it's about the idea of zooming out. So depending on what your uh, tendencies are, uh, the idea about zooming in is to say, really emphasize that subject, really emphasize that color, fill the frame with color. But then once you've done that, back off a little bit too, because we have a problem sometimes when we're zooming in too far, we can lose the reference of the environment for where our subject is. And sometimes it's really nice to make sure we have that anchoring idea of what the environment is. So it just depends what your goals are, but zoom in and see what you can do to isolate something. I like to try to really study a subject photographically and zooming in can help me do that because I start to chop certain things off the subject and it allows me to you know hone in on whatever's exciting me about this subject and then it can just make that color pop because it becomes more of that frame and it's not something that is you know just super small and insignificant but certainly those can work well too so whether it's a cluster of trees you know zoom in on a on a few leaves maybe uh, zoom in on you know half a tree whatever the case is uh, maybe it's some berry bushes or maybe it's the side of a mountain and, you, and you're looking you know, over a valley or something like that. And you've just got a whole side of the mountain that you can uh, zoom in and start making different images based on you know, what you're including and what you're excluding. And it's all about making the, the subject that you're photographing, making it more prominent. That's kind of the, the background idea of that one. And showing color contrast. So uh, that's the ones I find most compelling is when all of those colors are there. So the orange, the yellow, the purple, the green, it's all in there together. Is yes. What I like the best. And that's tip number four. Look for contrasts. There you go. And, you know, this is a season like no other. And one of these things about this season that I suppose I could say if I were to complain about a season, the problem with with fall is that the good stuff just doesn't last long enough. Because you get on one of those groups in Facebook or you look at one of those you know, predictor websites and you're all like, oh, you know, it's happening really good here, but I'm not available for three more days or whatever the case is, you know, and right. you just know potentially in a way the color is going to change. But if you can get out there and you can accentuate those colors, the differences between them, especially if you're shooting in an area that has a mixture of something like aspens and evergreens, those brilliant colors next to the deep greens of the evergreens can make for really great contrast. Not only a contrast of color, but those trees are different textures and they're different shapes. So you have these different ideas of contrast going into it, and that can provide a really good interest for the scene that you're creating. Yeah, I love it. It's it's beautiful to see a composition where that has is done there. And we talked about zoom in. My personal preference is I love it when there's a really wide landscape view filled sure. with trees with yeah. color. Yes. I love that when when I can see a, a, a wide array of trees and, and it's tough to get into that position. It's one of the things I haven't liked about my own photos that I've taken. I have a lot of places where I'm driving through the canyon and it looks just beautiful to me as I'm driving through. But yep. then as I stop and I try to, to capture it, I'm not finding something that really expresses the beauty that I'm seeing there in person. 
And, uh, and so, so having the right perspective, the right angle, the right point to go and shoot from, I don't feel, feel like I found that yet for, for where I want to be in the photos that I want to take. That's probably my biggest challenge has been, been that, that fact, right? I've had, I've got some that are, I'm zoomed in on individual leaves or a group of leaves or something like that, that where, where I'm pretty happy with, with some of the results that are there, but that nice wide scene filled with color and lots of contrast is what I don't feel like I've captured yet. Yeah, I, I can I can certainly resonate with that because as I, as I mentioned here in Southeast Washington, that pretty much doesn't exist. When, <laughs> when we go up to the mountains, we, we, we title them mountains, but I put it in air quotes because they're really like hills. It's all evergreen. And, you know, I have to go, I have a nice park in town called Pioneer Park. Lots of great fall color there, but it's not something that you can back up and get that beautiful mountain right. scene, that kind of a thing. Tip number five is to be thinking about the lighting. And what I'm talking about here is that light, whatever exists for when you're shooting, if it's rather flat, I say go for isolation because your sky is probably going to be quite boring. You know, if it's just bland you know, white clouds that have zero detail in them. That's what, that's the kind of what I'm talking about. It's going to be super soft light and the sky is probably pretty boring. So uh, isolating those details, maximizing your saturation of the subject because you're isolating those details in this very soft light. Uh, those zoomed out scenes can also work really well. Think too, if you're there in the early morning, you might have some fog coming through. Oh, uh, yeah. Other weather that might be going on. Maybe you've got a storm bank, you know, off yonder and and it's affecting the lighting for how you're shooting over here. Or maybe it is stormy and you're looking to get some of those really, you know, whether it's lightning or maybe it's uh, some motion because the wind is really just whipping those leaves around and you drag the shutter so you can have lots of motion because those leaves are whipping around in the wind. Uh, if you have a high contrast scene, so the light is just like clear blue sky, it's just punching through. Uh, that's actually when I would say, rather than shooting it front on, because that might be just quite harsh uh, for those for those subjects. But if you were to move around and shoot it backlit, you might be able to have that light kind of coming through those leaves and they're backlit, and then they're just starting to glow, and it just yeah can be really cool uh, with that too. I, th I think of the mood of fall. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's after summer. Summer is the time when we think about bright sun, yeah. beach, you know, sunshine, heat, warm, those kinds of things. And fall, we're transitioning to away from that. Yeah. We're, we're in between that. So to me, the, the thing that conveys the mood of a fall photo is one where there isn't huge bright sunlight in the scene yeah it's something that's that's toned down a lot from that and we're helped a little bit by by the sunlight hours we're going to have less sunlight so you're going to have dark or dusk come earlier in the day that makes or later in the morning it makes it a little more accessible to go and, and get those kinds of photos but just like any landscape scene where it's better during those like uh golden hour blue hour kind of times than it is right in the middle of the day when there's bright, harsh sunlight. That's still the case here, and I think contributes even more to the mood if you can arrange to be shooting at that kind of time of day. Yes, mood, that's that's uh, sets everything. This lighting that we're talking about totally sets everything about that mood, and that's definitely a good be be thinking about that too and how that informs what you're shooting when you're out there, how you're reacting to your subject 
with the lighting that you have. Uh, so it can be difficult to do this sometimes with trees. You know, what I'm talking about with the with a bright sunshiny may because you just can't right. get it aligned right. And you know, if that's the if that's the lighting you're given, how do you work with that? If you want to create that mood like you're just talking about, how do you work with that? Well, you can look more into the details of some areas that are in the shade. Uh, if you can't get those backlit items, if you can get the backlit items, those uh, the veins within the leaves and then the branches, you know, every little tiny little twigs and the larger branches, those will turn to a silhouette and that can be a really cool effect as well. And I try, sometimes you can think about too, though, needing to create maybe because of it's so bright, uh, maybe you want to do a, some kind of exposure blend or exposure uh, adjustment in post-production and with that, my go-to process, if you're a little more advanced and you're comfortable with Photoshop, is to say, try and nail that exposure so you can double process the image. Because when you have that row of trees and you have that transition from the bright sky to the row of trees, you're going to invariably have the wind blowing. And if you take two different exposures, you're not going to be able to have that alignment where you need yeah. that transition to happen with your exposure adjustment. So... I know from experience, I've done it. <laughs> Me too. And yep. <laughs> I've looked at it and it's just like, this is so frustrating because that twig, that branch, whatever, it moved like half an inch and yeah. it just doesn't work. And so if you can get it, maybe it looks like a terrible image. The darks are really dark and the brights are really bright, but you know you can process it doubly and you can take that really bright and you can bring it down. You can take that really dark, you can bring it up. Then you can merge it in Photoshop. Things start to to come really good because you know you don't have that motion that you have to worry about between two different frames. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. Um, for the newer photographers, I say don't worry about that just yet. <laughs> Focus on trying to isolate things. Focus on evening out your light a little better rather than dealing with such a high contrast scene. Yeah, it just makes it easier if you can do it. Yeah, at the time of of dawn or dusk. So that you you have a scene where the lighting is a little more even in front of you and, and you don't have the harsh bright to dark yeah. contrast there that, that you have to deal with in, in the dynamic range. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tip number six, uh, you had briefly mentioned it before. Tip number six is water. There are so many ways to incorporate water in your fall shots, whether it's rivers, lakes, ponds, streams. They all have the ability to enhance the mood of your scene. And... Long-time listeners certainly know I'm a sucker for water, whether it's waterfalls, oceans, lakes, whatever. I love water, and it just does really cool stuff. Reflections are probably the most common or popular way to think about composing a fall scene with water. Whether you're getting a wider shot and you've got many trees at the water's edge, or maybe you're zooming in on some rocks and the, the branches or the leaves or what have you are reflecting in the water around those rocks. And they have all sorts of this, this wash of color going all around them. Maybe you're just focusing on the rippling water itself and you don't have any rocks. And it's all about that abstraction of that liquid gold, basically this pure liquid gold that you have as the water is just rippling through. That can be really cool if you're zooming in, let's say like a 400 millimeter lens or something, and you're able to just totally isolate and get reflections only. Uh, that, that can be really cool stuff. Waterfalls can also be amazing with fall color around them. I say experiment with different shutter speeds so you can render that water 
with a little more, a little less detail. But also watch that leaf detail. Depending on the size of your waterfall and how close those leaves are to the water, you're always going to have some kind of breeze, some kind of wind going because of the motion of the water. And you might have some of that swaying effect happening because of the wind swaying those leaves. And that can be really cool to allow those to move as well. And there's one thing that I've done too where I allowed it to go really crazy and I actually incorporated some camera movement when I did that. And that's actually tip number seven is incorporating camera movement. But before I dive into that, is there anything to add, Jeff, you have for the idea of water? I know you mentioned a little bit ago, but water. Yeah, some of my favorite fall foliage pictures that I haven't taken, it's been other people's that I've admired, include like a, the reflection in a lake of yeah. those fall colors. It's just so incredible to be able to see that. And that's kind of one of my bucket list shots that I want to have. There's plenty of lakes up here in Utah, in the Utah mountains. I need to just get around it while it's in the fall season. And, yeah and see if I can get one of those shots. It, it's incredible. And, and especially, like you said, if there's like the mist coming off of the lake or oh, the, yeah. the, kind of the fog rolling in, it, what a what a mood for fall colors. And, and being there at just the right moment to capture that, I'd be ecstatic if if I managed to be there at the right time for that. Yeah. <laughs> just, ah, <laughs> that would be so awesome. And it it's would. such a serene effect too. And that's one of the things... You know, it just puts me at such a calm, such at ease. And even just thinking about it and remembering some of those images that I've seen that others have done, uh, like you're talking about, yeah, that's just good stuff. So this idea of camera movement, there's two ways really to kind of be thinking about that. And that is you can either just kind of freehand it. And what I talked about, what I kind of led into this idea with the waterfall was I saw all this bright, brilliant color and it was greens and oranges and yellows and, and whatnot. And what I wanted to do was like, well, let's make this truly an abstract impressionist type feel. And so I took my shutter, went to about a half a second to a full second, somewhere in there. And then I just took my camera pretty much off the tripod and handheld it. And I just, as I was clicking the shutter, I was moving the camera going down the, the waterfall or going up the waterfall. And so I, I have the water moving, I have the leaves and the color moving and just creating this swirl of color. I'll put something in the uh, Facebook group for so you can see what I'm talking about there because it can just be an otherworldly experience when you're trying to shoot something like that. But it's all about just your, your shutter speed and then how much your exposure is otherwise with your ISO and, and, and aperture to make that nice and bright enough because, you know, when you're dragging that whole thing around the scene, the colors tend to blend a little bit. And so the, it's about the right amount of motion and what you're doing with that. Another thing I've done is to take a set of trees and, you know, the, the trunks are nice and vertical. And so if you just focus on moving the camera up in a vertical motion, and so basically it's tilting it up, I should say, that can enhance you know, the idea of the verticalness of those trunks and then the color just becomes a wash. It becomes like it's dripping down kind of a thing. Uh, one thing when you do this though, when you have a wider angle camera, a wider angle lens, you tend to get some curvature on the edges. And so I like to do this, if I'm doing it with trees, I like to do it with about a 50 millimeter lens or longer because that will minimize the curvature on the edges. And the only reason I want to do that is because these are vertical straight up and down trunks. And I don't want to 
lose the rendering of those trunks like that. Have you ever done something like that, Jeff, where you're maximizing that idea of, of verticalness in your, in your subject? Not verticalness. No, I've, I've done shots where I want to show motion with like a, a car or a sure. runner or something like that where I'm panning along with them. But yeah, not not the vertical stuff. This is an interesting thing to try. Yeah, with the with the vertical idea, all it is about really is getting it so you're blurring everything. You don't have a detail that says, oh, this is a trunk. You're saying, oh, that must be a trunk because I have such a, a, a series of these. They're all mm-hmm. in a row. And then it makes sense, you know, I have some color up top or just depending on where the, you know, where the color starts falling into play. You just have some really interesting opportunities to, to play with, with the interpretation of what it means to be a tree in your image. Now, another thing that I like doing too is rather than going with a single image and just going straight up and down or, you know, in case of the waterfall, just following the movement of the water. I like to be able to sometimes take a look with um, tip number eight is multiple exposure. Now, it does involve moving the camera, but what we're doing there is we're going to take multiple exposures of the same image. And you've got a couple of ways to think about how are you going to move the camera while you do this multiple exposure. You can either just go completely random and get a really kind of impressionistic texture feel in the end. Or you can kind of focus around a certain element. You can rotate around a certain point and emphasize that point. Uh, if you're looking for some great inspiration in something like this, there's a, a link in the show notes from Freeman Patterson. He's been shooting like this forever. And so I have a link in the show notes there. And his work is, I mean, he's like, everything it's just awesome stuff uh when you're looking at how this comes together now you have to release yourself from that photographic purity as it were <laughs> because you have to think if if you like monet print you know paintings you're probably going to like freeman patterson with how he does these multiple exposure images i see yeah i'm just checking out the links right now and and like you said, this uh, movement of the camera, trying to emphasize a subject in the in the photo, yeah, yeah. Because whether it's you know isolating a colorful flower, a colorful set of leaves, you know maybe you have the first clump of leaves that are turning orange in a sea of green still, and you're able to somehow you know rotate around that. And you have all this green going around it with this really funky texture. It, it can be really cool. And I really, I get excited about that stuff anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, tip number nine is to think about your white balance. And if you're a raw shooter, you know, like for myself, more often than not, my white balance is just set to auto white balance. The camera does a pretty good job. Uh, in a basic setting. And if it screws up, you know, that's no problem. We can quickly uh, rescue that in our raw processing. But I like to think about setting my white balance when I'm doing uh, some fall colors, because when you're isolating that image and you're filling the scene with a bunch of really warm hues, that white balance is going to get messed up. And it's probably going to give you something that when you initially look at it, you're like, oh, that's kind of sick. So if you set your white balance to match your daylight, whatever you have, whether it's a cloudy day, whether it's a, you're in the shade, 
maybe, you know, it's full on sunlight. You're going to get the consistency that you need when you're reviewing your images on camera. So, you know, you'll start to be able to just get used to it and you'll start to know what's working for you. And I think it's easier when you have that consistency and you can start to predict more easily what's working for you. You know, if it still needs to be changed later, again, we're shooting in raw mostly, the, most of the time, and uh, was what we recommend anyway. And you can always change it later. It's just still you have that consistency during the act of shooting, and you're going to be hopefully uh, getting better images because of because of that consistency and predictability. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, tip number ten. And um, we actually have a bonus tip for you that we'll, we'll get to in just a second. Uh, but tip number 10, uh, explore your options with your scene. We've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, you know, these cliche shots, they can be very beautiful. And I might call them like the icon shots, the iconic. You know, you go to this certain location in Vermont, you've got the quaint little church, you've got the picket, the, the white picket fence, and it's an explosion of reds and oranges and yellows all around. Those yeah. can be awesome. And the cliche shots are not something that I would recommend that you, you know, ignore, but don't let that be your target. Don't let that be your trophy because whatever you can put your personal thumbprint on that image, your experience, your, whatever it is that you bring to the table, work the, work the scene, work the subject, try and figure out what that is for yourself because when you, you know, hang around that subject longer, when you are working it over and you're just really diving deep into whatever it is, it's something that all of a sudden, after a certain period of time, it just becomes yours. And I think that's awesome. And fall colors, they aren't something that we get to spend a whole lot of time with anyway. So by slowing down and exploring our options, we're just able to soak ourselves in even more. And that's just another reason that I say, go a little deeper with it, whatever that means for you. And, you know, for me, it's something different than the next person. It's something different for you, Jeff. It's whatever it means for you to truly experience that item and be able to share that experience, focus on that experience and share that experience with us through your imagery. Right. And I was thinking with Explorer Options, the advice I was thinking of was now, because the season right now is probably early. Yeah. It's probably not this week as we're releasing this episode we're hoping it's not so you have some time to kind of prepare but so now might be the right time to go out and explore scouting yes Um, where am i gonna go try to find a good composition so that i know where i'm gonna go when the leaves are the right that when they're ready when they're in the colors and uh and so you know in that imagining what you're gonna do because this is why i think i have failed thus far in getting my fall photos we my wife and i will set a day we're like hey we want to go see the the fall colors we want to go drive up in the canyons and we'll stop and try to take pictures along the way and and inevitably just find it just i don't have a great spot that i'm trying to and i keep thinking like well i wish i was over there on that side of the mountain or or wherever i changing something and then i don't note it down i don't follow up year to year and i end up in exactly the same position so if, if i could go on a on a scouting trip right now where my sole purpose is to find a spot where i think the composition is going to be what i need 
and then wait for the color to come. I know where I'm going to go. I can get there. I can be there at the right time of day so that the lighting is good. Then, then I'd have a much better chance at getting a really impressive photo, creating a really impressive photo out of that kind of a scene than what I've tried thus far, which just hasn't worked. Excellent advice. And that just adds even more to your experience because then you have that history of having scouted and it just becomes all that more meaningful to you. And I, I just love it. That's, that's great uh, advice for sure. Uh, tip number 11, uh, Jeff found this uh, while we were actually talking here, and that is a website, especially for those of you in the Smoky Mountains, smokymountains.com slash fall foliage map. And each of those words is separated with a hyphen. So fall hyphen foliage hyphen map. And you're going to be able to take a look and see you know, what's, what's happening there with, with the fall colors there in the, the Smoky Mountains. So that's, that's a, good, uh, a good link there. It's in the show notes. So, and it's actually going to cover the entire nation. Oh, it does? Yeah, Smoky Mountains is publishing this, but they have an interactive map. This was the resource I said. I can never remember where it is, but it's, it's an interactive map that you change the date from September 7th through November 30th, and it kind of shows you, and they, they update it every year. I don't know differences per year. I haven't paid attention enough to compare them to see if they have varied much, but this is a 2019 map. And it's trying to predict when is going to be like the peak time to go and do the the fall colors in your area. So it depends nice. on where you live and where you're going to go, when it's going to be. And it, it starts north first. I mean, that's when the light starts changing. Is It starts at the north. So the north and goes down towards the south. And so for me here in my area and where I plan to go shoot, it looks like the week of about October 5th to 12th that's a Saturday to Saturday, then I, that's the ideal time for me to be out there and shoot um, as predicted by this. And they, of course, make disclaimers like, this isn't guaranteed. Right. Yeah, okay, we get it. <laughs> you know, stuff can happen. It's, this is weather and you can't guarantee anything. But uh, yeah, it's, it's got a pretty good map and they've done this for many years. I, I should bookmark it because I, yeah. I end up at this map every year to take a look at this. And uh, so it's, it's a good resource for everyone to go check out and, and plan your shoot now so that you know when you need to be going to the spot you find to, uh, to try to nail a fall foliage photo. Yeah, the, by breaking it down week by week, and then you can see the, the growing color of the map as it goes down. Now, this is just for the U.S., so there might be yes. other, uh, op- other things like this that are for Canada places in Europe, possibly, uh, you might find some resources like this too. And incidentally, if you do, I would say feel free to share them in the Facebook group because that would Absolutely. be a great place to uh, continue sharing other stuff like this uh, so, we, so we can have more people in these other areas have a good resource to, to reference. That's, that is beautiful. Yep, really fun. And I think same thing for sharing your photos. We, we put a thread out every single Sunday. Erica does a really good job of Every Sunday, she puts up a post in the Facebook group of a, an image, and that's where we want everyone to share their images as comments to that post. We don't want to have the Facebook group filled with just tons of photos from everybody, and you can't find posts that we make about other topics or questions. We want it to be a, more of a resource people can go to to find questions and answers for things, and not as much the seeing the photos from everybody. So we have this one post that Erica makes every Sunday. We'd love to have you post then your fall photos, even if it's not this year, but it'd be better if it was this year. But if even if it's not and it's one that you're really proud of, 
then post it in there. Let's let's take a look, and and I'd, I'd love to see uh, what you all have come up with for fall colors. We could definitely use some inspiration to get Jeff and myself off our keisters and and out there. <laughs> so so get them in there this coming Friday or the next Friday or Sunday, excuse me. Yep. And uh, and we'll be able to to be inspired as well as everyone else. That would be awesome. Yeah, and I, I try to explain that as people. There's new listeners that come. They they join the group and they. One of the first things to do is is try to share one of their photos that it, it's great. I'm glad they are, but I I usually decline those and say, look, we, we want you to post it on the thread. That's kind of how we we want to work this, just so that the group is cleaner and not filled with with all kinds of photos. Yeah, very good. All right, let's head on over to our doodads of the week. Jeff, what do you have for us? I've mentioned this one before, but I'm using it a lot, and I just had a question about it, so I decided to add it again this week. It's the utility I use so that I can write to drives I formatted from my Windows computer on my Mac computer. So it, just to give you a little bit more explanation, I use Mac and Windows a lot. I interchange between the two a lot, and um, I kind of feel like I need to just so I can f- see how software's working between the two and, and have the experience with it. But also because that's my preference as far as when I'm home and can work on stuff, I, I prefer my Windows desktop for the power and that I could get there. And then when I'm on the road or mobile, uh, for whatever reason, I love the, the MacBook Pro for that experience. So I, I use the both them both. And um, what I've done with my external drives then, especially with my MacBook, it's, it doesn't have uh, hardly any space internally. So I, I have to use an external drive when I'm editing photos with it. And uh, I format the drive NTFS is the name of the format. It's a Windows-specific format. By default, Mac can read it, but not write to it. This is my solution to that problem. I use this utility called NTFS for Mac by Paragon Software. Paragon is, they know their stuff with with regard to like hard drive utilities. And uh, it's really solid software to overcome that challenge and make it so that my Windows formatted hard drive is fully readable, writable, and, and transparent as you use it on a Mac. It, it works exactly the same as, as anything else does with this software utility load. It's about 20 bucks to license it for one computer and it's been totally worth it to me. The other option that is free is formatting your drive in a format called XFAT. It's E-X-F-A-T. It's a good solution too. I just, I prefer to have my drives formatted this way, but there, there's no right or wrong way to do this. If you want the free option, go format it XFAT, and then that's really compatible between the, the two operating systems. And I remember one time I bought, I think it was a hard drive from Toshiba, and it came with something like this that Toshiba was providing as well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the hard drive you buy may provide you that utility as well, but maybe they don't do that anymore. I don't know. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, been a while. Is a, a, this is a well-proven one for sure. me. I've used oh, yeah. it for several years now, and... And can highly recommend it if if you're in the same a similar situation, uh, or if you are someone who uses Mac most of the time, and and you have students, or you have you have people that bring you uh, Windows formatted stuff, which is going to be probably very common. This would be a way to make it so that that just works transparently. Yep, my doodad is actually a different type of camera. So I rented the Olympus OMD EM1 Mark II. And from a few listeners that I've heard from, I guess the Mark III is probably fairly soon coming out. But anyway, uh, so I just kind of in my 
quest for looking for a smaller camera, I decided to rent this and I took it out to the coast last week. And it is a good camera for sure. It's fun to shoot. Um, it wasn't, if I can classify it in, su in such a way, it wasn't, quote, as fun to shoot as I was having with the Fuji, uh, just because of the ergonomics and whatnot. But still a very respectable camera and uh, was able to make some really good images with that. So I was, I was pleased to try that out. So uh, just, I'm not saying you have to go out and run and buy it. It's just if you're looking for that smaller camera, that might be something that's interesting to you. Very good. All right, a few reminders for y'all. We do have the the home of the show where all the show notes are located and everything like that, masterphotographypodcast.com. And then we've also talked about the Facebook group, Master Photography Podcast. You can search for that. And we've got one simple question that we need you to answer. That is one of the hosts of the show. So certainly myself, my name is Brent, or Jeff will work. We also have Brian, Connor, and Erica. And then uh, any of our recent guests that we've had on, those can certainly work too. So you're uh, certainly more than welcome. We, we invite you absolutely to join us there and uh, continue the learning between episodes, basically, is kind of how that works. And we do have an Instagram account at Master Photography Podcast. You can find my work over at my regular personal website. That's just my name, brentbergherm.com. I've got the Latitude Photography Podcast. That's over at latitudephotographypodcast.com and just search for it in your favorite player, which now includes Pandora. So I just nice. um, got that out on Pandora. I think I saw it confirmed today, actually, as we're recording this. And then uh, we've got uh, a Facebook group for my, our Facebook page, I should say, for my photography interests. There's also a Facebook group for the Latitude Photography Podcast. You can find me on Instagram over at the hashtag Brent Bergherm, and then my YouTube channel. I just produced uh, probably three or four videos week before last and exposure averaging, some items on printing, and I'm going to do some more hopefully this week as my schedule, uh, if my schedule will allow it. Uh, so just search for Brent Bergherm Photography on YouTube. And Jeff, where can they find you? So you can see my work at jsharmanphotos.com or check out my other podcast that I do, phototacopodcast.com for, for that. And it's a very searchable kind of thing. So if, if you've got questions about, especially technical questions about photography related things, then go try searching there and see. I probably have a podcast episode or two or three on the topic that you can go and find there. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter, and those links will be in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you again in another seven days. 